This is the fourth lecture um, in the year-long series, The Artist's House, and today is very special. It kind of marks the, the middle of the series, but also a very special one because we actually have um, Associate Professor and um, Director of Cultural Practice at MADA in Melbourne, uh, Tara McDowell with us. But Tara McDowell is our co-conspirer for the lecture series, and we've been selecting the different lectures together. So we're hearing from one of the people that actually kind of helped us and worked with us to come up with the idea for this lecture series. Uh, very, very happy to have Tara here all the way from Melbourne. She brought the Melbourne weather, unfortunately, we <laughs> noticed. We were bragging, we were just in Melbourne and saying, it's beautiful, it's Brisbane, best time of year, you should come enjoy the sun. <laughs> and unfortunately, it's not sunny at all. But, so, Tara moved to Australia nearly three years ago to, to become the first director of the curatorial PhD program at MADA, but she has an artistry PhD from Berkeley um, University in California and is the senior editor of the Exhibitionist magazine that we have in stock in the IMA MADA bookstore. and uh, has written uh, quite a bit for Art Forum, Art Agenda, uh, Moose, um, an Australian and magazine. Uh, and has worked also in curatorial positions across the US and done a number of shows, um, Octopus at Gertrude two years ago and um, last year, the 2015 Tbilisi Triennale. And tonight she'll be speaking as, about the artist as initiator and I'm not gonna go into details about that because Tara's just about to explain what she means with that, but I just wanna flag because these talks have not uh, been coming been a bit, uh, there's been a bit of a break since our last talk, Emily Pethick, but the next one is coming up very soon. Uh, Brooke Andrew, probably well known to most people here, Sydney-born but Melbourne-based um, contemporary artist on the 13th of September. So without further ado, um, welcome Tamika. I think that's good. Thank you. Can everyone hear me okay? Uh, thank you all for coming out on a night like this when you could be in watching Netflix or something. Um, it's such a pleasure to be here and thank you so much to the IMA staff and for having me and to Aileen and Johan. It's been really fantastic to put this lecture series together this year. I hope you enjoy, have enjoyed it and continue to enjoy the people who are to come. Um, I Several people said, when I said, oh, I'm giving this lecture, several people said, oh, so you're going to talk about the artist as curator. Um, and I, I think that I purposefully decided not to do that, um, just as a little bit of a reaction formation. So I'm doing something a bit different. Uh, it's the first time I'm presenting this lecture. I have written it out, but I've tried to make it as pleasurable as possible, despite mm -hmm. that um, fact. And I actually start a bit um, talking about a potential lecture series that I'm dreaming of for next year or uh, even maybe the year after. So maybe Aileen and Johan, we can talk after, <laughs> afterwards. Um, okay. Lately, I've been thinking about 2017. I'm thinking about a lecture series for the curatorial practice PhD program I direct at Monash University in Melbourne. I'm thinking about calling it The Far Away Nearby, which is not my title. It's Rebecca Solnitz. She's an incredible writer based in my hometown, San Francisco, so my homage is pointed, if a misappropriation. Solnitz's book 
is about storytelling, about how we create and are sustained by narratives, by stories throughout our lives. But I'm less interested in the content of her book than her position in relation to the space of art. She is not within the art world, but rather she is adjacent to it. Sometimes she's far away, as in her terrifically funny diagnostic, men explain things to me. Sometimes she's nearby, as in her book on Edward Muybridge, River of Shadows, Edward Muybridge, and the Technological Wild West. And I'm showing you here, this is a photograph by Muybridge of the Farallon Islands off the coast of um, San Francisco. Or her study of Bay Area beat artists, secret exhibition, six California artists of the Cold War era. Sometimes she simply frames something we all know about art a little bit differently, like the history of walking. So I'm thinking about a lecture series comprised of individuals who seem nearby the space of art, though not entirely within it. Many are figures who have been especially, sometimes fervently, embraced by artists, curators, art workers, pulled into the orbit of art quite deliberately rather than wandering over themselves. Philosophers are the usual and long-standing suspects here, but I'm interested in those figures who come from other realms of thought. Denise Ferreira da Silva comes to mind, as does Sarah Ahmed or Michael Talzig, Manuel de Landa or Ignacio Chapella from the field of science, or Bernadette Meyer and Claudia Rankin from poetry. This is, uh, I, if, I highly recommend this book. I just read it, Claudia Rankin's Citizen in American Lyric. Um, from my perspective, I can see the impact of these thinkers and their perspectives on my world, the world of art, or so I think. The series might be an attempt to grapple with this a bit more head on. I also want to ask them how their engagements with artists have impacted what they do in their own spheres of influence. What gets carried back home? What feelings of disciplinary discomfort does the encounter with art generate? For that matter, is there any discomfort in the other direction? Or is it a blissful welcome with open arms? Lurking here is my sense that uncomfortableness might be a good thing. It challenges us all to think about the values and conditions, the procedures and operations that we take for granted. I'm also thinking about art's adjacencies because that's where my students' interests increasingly seem to lie. I don't think they're interested in art history. I don't think they're interested in art theory or criticism either. I'm a bit scared to say this out loud, but I'm not always certain they're interested in art. In the past six months alone, I've watched Anne Chapman's extraordinary documentary films on the Selknam, an indigenous group in Tierra del Fuego, whose literal disappearance she witnessed with her heartbreaking 1977 film, The Una People, Life and Death in Tierra del Fuego. I've read an archeologist's argument for cave painting in Arnhem Land as a form of performance driven by touch rather than vision. I've studied tectology, the systems theory of forgotten Bolshevik Alexander Bogdanov. So fervently did Bogdanov believe in his sideways theory of knowledge, which posited the relationality of all things, that he conducted blood transfusions with students in the 1920s, despite his lack of medical training, which led to his premature death. I've considered the wild and wooly career of Johnny Saucy, who's got the arrow above him here. 
The Milanese polymath who first brought John Cage to Italy, managed the Italian prog rock band Area, and ran a gastronomy magazine. As a cultural promoter, he blows Harold Zaman out of the water. So those are some things that my students and I have looked at together. In general, my students don't feel the need to have read Claire Bishop, let alone Hal Foster. Not only do they not seem to require a disciplinary knowledge or a historiography of art history, by which I mean the discipline's biography from Vasari to Winkelmann onto Wolflin, Regal, Panofsky, and so on. If you studied art history, these names are familiar to you. But they aren't even obligated to map a historiography of their own emerging discipline, curatorial practice. They are truly and happily surprised when, for example, in reading an essay by Carolyn Christoph Bakarjiev that I've assigned, they realize her position is so closely aligned with their own. Surely one anecdotal testimony does not a wholesale movement make, but I do see the landscape before me as symptomatic. It is, of course, one of the purest pleasures of being a teacher attempting to recognize and diagnose something you don't understand, don't yet understand. I'm not at all opposing to dispensing with most curatorial discourse, to be honest. It often feels like it has no grip, so vaguely smooth and blandly politically correct are its critical surfaces. But rather than locate oneself within a disciplinary home, today's curator increasingly finds herself op operating more like a bricoleur piecing together a wholly individualized theory of the world from the entirety of human knowledge, bound by no fences and free to maneuver according to a heady brew of personal formation, accidental encounter, and a new brand of identity politics. She is an expert in nothing more than her own line of flight, sideways, not linear, or even hierarchical knowledge indeed. A parenthetical. There is an adjacency or neighborliness here to the artist as phenomenon that this lecture series has taken as its subject. The series arose from the simple observation that artists are free to now to occupy specific roles only temporarily as a kind of occupational drag. Such amateurism began with the artist as photographer, a phenomenon that emerged in the 1960s and 70s to allow documentation of more ephemeral practices associated with conceptualism, land art, and performance. And Ed Ruscha is really emblematic of this, the artist as photographer. He's not trained as a photographer, but photography is the medium with which he makes most of his work. In recent years for any given project, the artist may act as an ethnographer, as archivist, as producer, as curator, as activist, as choreographer, and so on. Or in turn, individuals arrive from these disciplines to the space of art, which to its great credit is increasingly capacious and hospitable. There is a relationship still to be teased out between the artist as and the expanded field. The very first formulation of the artist as that we found is Gene Youngblood's The Artist as Ecologist, which tellingly appeared in his book Expanded Cinema, which you see a page from here. Expanded Cinema, in turn, inspired the most famous of all expansions, Rosalind Krauss's sculpture in the expanded field, which spawned a veritable cottage industry of permutations, including photography in the expanded field, painting in the expanded field, architecture in the expanded field, and, you guessed it, curating in the expanded field. It is no wonder that in the face of such expansions, the individual line of flight is all that can be managed, 
and that it often involves the amateurism of the artist as phenomenon. And of course, all this expansion is not into deep space, but into adjacent territories, themselves already involved in elaborate processes of self-mapping, hence the faraway nearby. End of parenthetical. So reflecting on the situation in which I found myself, really a near constant state of intellectual displacement since arriving in Australia three years ago, I felt a sense of deja vu. I realized that several years ago, I encountered the exact sentiments I'm currently experiencing in an essay by Johanna Burton on not curating, and the not is spelled K-N-O-T, published in The Exhibitionist in 2011. Burton, then director of the CCS Bard Graduate Program in Curatorial Studies, was similarly assessing what it meant to lead a curating program as someone trained as an art historian. In her text, she raises the polemical possibility that, quote, considerations of curating, its practices, histories, procedures, and politics are in the process of becoming fully loosened from considerations of art in any previously coherent or stable sense, end quote. So here we've jumped off the cliff that I was scared even to name, right? It's not just that curators are disinterested in art history or curatorial history. Curating is drifting away from art. A little formalism turns one away from history, but a lot brings one back to it. This is Roland Barthes writing in 1957 in his essay, Myth Today. Barthes' semiological reading of mythology aims to show that rather than being at cross purposes, the seemingly opposed methods of formalism and historical criticism are deeply dialectically linked. So too, we might say, and we wouldn't be the first to say, that the distinction between art and non-art is equally false, even distracting. But beyond this, perhaps we could speculate with Barthes that a lot of turning away from art might bring you back to it. Science, Bart tells us, must speak about life if it wants to transform it. So too must art. The question is, in your turning away, what have you turned back towards? What category of thought, what ideas inform, what position staked in the world, and how does it sit, comfortably or not, within its home? What has been transformed in this process? So that's one of the key questions of the lecture. For Burton, the reason why the curatorial students in her program aren't interested in art has to do with institutional failure. The failures of art's institutions, surely, but also the failure of the institution of art, which is not the same thing. Here, I'm adducing institutional critique and its many permutations and waves, one of the more recent being so-called new institutionalism. Failure is not always the right word for a given situation, especially when it's lived on the ground. Sometimes it's an ongoing, deep-seated disappointment in institutions. Sometimes it's the illegibility of institutions to those who would seek shelter there and vice versa. Sometimes it's about power or money or reputation. Sometimes there simply are no institutions. For all of these reasons and more, artists have historically invented their own institutions. The state of emergency, after all, and I'm quoting Homi Baba here, the state of emergency is also always a state of emergence. That's what this talk is really about. 
This history stretches far beyond that of in institutional critique and its ways and means diverge as much as converge from this modern phenomenon. Think of Jacques-Louis David, radical revolutionary in Robespierre of the Brush, recently released from prison following the reign of terror, confronting his lack of options. He had just completed a major new painting, which you see here, The Intervention of the Sabine Women, but he had no place to show it, having eradicated, repudiated, or executed the Royal Academy, the church, and the aristocracy in that order. Thus, the beginning of the public exhibition within Western art history. Think of Gustave Courbet, half a century later, we're also still in Paris, doing a bit of self-organizing of his own, following the Academy's rejection of two of his large canvases, the burial or non, which you see on the screen, and the painter in his studio. For being, bluntly put, a little too small town life and not intervention of the Sabine women enough. So there he is, setting up shop across from the Royal Academy, hanging his paintings, charging for coat and umbrella check, and selling reproductions to offset the cost of the whole endeavor. I guess we could say the first museum gift shop was artists organized. Artists have long invented and built infrastructure to support their work. But this usually takes the form of arts apparatus. The guild, the academy, the salon, the school, the magazine, the publishing imprint, the bookstore, the gallery, the museum. These are the structures we have for making, showing, and thinking about art. Lately, newer forms have joined this apparatus, and they too are occasionally artists organized. The biennial, the art fair. Arts apparatus has long felt inadequate to artists. Robert Smithson's laid back but chilly line cuts to the bone here. I'm just interested in exploring the apparatus I'm being threaded through, you know, and to me that's a legitimate interest. For many artists, this situation has grown worse, not better, in the intervening decades. It rarely makes it into the official discourse, but at openings, on trains, in private emails, in studios. It's the same story of exhaustion, exploitation, and not to be too cute, lack of curatorial care. Take the case of biennials. Some have a dozen curators and one technician. Installation instructions are ignored, work is damaged, some artists are given lavish fees and travel packages, while others are told to fund themselves and their performances. Artists are invited last minute and told to produce new work. They aren't asked basic questions about the size of their work or the materials with which it is made. The curator is not only to blame here, she is also threaded through an apparatus of shrinking resources and burgeoning expectations. Such is the impossible cocktail of arts austerity and growth economics. In our very near future, there must be a conversation about the work of art in the age of a degrowth economy. This is essentially what WAGE is working towards, for those of you who are familiar with uh, working artists for the greater economy. Sometimes artists, but also curators, writers, educators, and arts administrators come out of these encounters feeling nourished, but just as often they emerge bruised and traumatized. And yet curatorial discourse that's churned out at a healthy rate, usually in the form of interviews or essay compendia, keeps the conversation in the loftier atmospheres of the curatorial, far removed from the base materialism of infrastructure. 
That base materialism I'll call with Georges Bataille the big toe of the art apparatus. Here is Bataille. The division of the universe into subterranean hell and perfectly pure heaven is an indelible conception, mud and darkness being the principles of evil as light and celestial space are the principles of good. With their feet in mud but their heads more or less in light, men obstinately imagine a tide that will permanently elevate them, never to return into pure space. Human life entails, in fact, the rage of seeing oneself as a back and forth movement from refuse to the ideal and from the ideal to refuse, a rage that is easily directed against an organ as base as the foot. Those of us participating in arts apparatus, I want to suggest, have lost the capacity for the rage of self-awareness of that damning oscillation between refuse and ideal. We have no rage because we have so successfully sublimated our refuse, or at least swept it under the carpet, confined it to hushed tones and conspiratorial schadenfreude at late night dinners. But back to the point. Artists have long initiated institutions that function within the apparatus of art. I'm not speaking of temporary projects per se, but institutions that involve or at least aspire to both infrastructure and sustainability. Artists have also initiated endeavors that appear to be more removed from arts apparatus, more or less adjacent to it, the far away nearby again. You can find examples in most cities and most arts communities. In my hometown of San Francisco, I could tell you about the King Ubu Gallery, founded in December 1952 by two poets and an artist, sorry, two artists and a poet, Jess Robert Duncan and Harry Jacobus. The gallery exhibited work of Jess and his fellow students at the San Francisco Art Institute and artist friends who simply had no place to show. In this way, it picked up where MetaArt, a student-run space encouraged by abstract expressionist Clifford Still, one of the teachers at the school, had left off cl after closing its doors in 1950. The appropriation of the anti-hero of Alfred Jerry's 1896 play Ubu Wa for the gallery's name lay the groundwork for an ethos founded in the absurd and irreverent Dada and surrealism, a dissident coterie, and a commingling of art, performance, and poetry. The trio only ever intended for King Ubu to run for 12 months, and its subsequent incarnation as the Sixth Gallery is better known, mostly for Allen Ginsberg's reading of his iconic beat anthem, Howl, one rowdy, cheap, red wine-fueled October night in 1955. I could tell you about Wallace Berman, a shaman of the California counterculture, who was deeply damaged by being arrested on obscenity charges at the Ferris Gallery in Los Angeles. The Ferris was where um, Andy Warhol had his first show, actually, of the Campbell's Soup Cans in 1962. So he retreated to a houseboat gallery in Larkspur on the San Francisco Bay, where he staged exhibitions and circulated his cult art publica publication, Semina. You see all the, the run of Semina here. I could tell you about Processed World, a San Francisco-based magazine written by artists and dissidents with day jobs as disaffected office workers. Processed World was 
as homegrown as fellow San Francisco bricoleur Bruce Connor, as anti-establishment as the Situationist International, and as prescient as Marshall McLuhan. Launched in April 1981, Processed World is at heart a child of the late 70s and early 80s and serves as a brutal encapsulation of that period's shift from a belief in radical utopian political movements to the increasingly tough to shake beatdown of the corporatizing, union busting Reagan years. Are you doing the processing or are you being processed? Asked the front cover of the inaugural issue which is clearly addressed to the magazine's proposed readership, other office workers, especially temps, in San Francisco's downtown financial district. Anxiety about human agency in the face of pointless office work and new technology, specifically one new technology, the computer, is writ large here and echoed in the lo-fi illustration accompanying this caption. Taking advantage of office supply rooms, the first two issues were printed on paper unknowingly donated by San Francisco's major banks. Organizers hawked copies on streets in outrageous homemade costumes mimicking IBM computers with the slogan, intensely boring machines. They developed savvy street calls. If you hate your job, then you'll love this magazine. <laughs> and encountered a curious, sometimes eager public. The lessons of process world become even more urgent under contemporary conditions of atomized labor in the information age as a model of self-organized resistance to the powers that be. The talk's in four parts, by the way. So that was then, this is now. Across the planet, there has been a resurgence, even a renaissance, of artist-organized activity in recent years. I'm not the only one who's noticed this. Terry Smith describes it as infrastructural activism, while Ekaterina Dago offers a slight variation in institutional activism. Okuyen Wieser calls this phenomenon civic imagination, which speaks less to a concrete process, less to infrastructure per se, than to a mode of being in the world. My description for this talk gave several examples of the kinds of institutions artists are organizing these days. NGOs, bakeries, multinational corporations, schools, cinemas, magazines, archives, biennials, and activist collectives. Here are some examples. In the mid-1990s, Lebanon is recovering from a painful and protracted civil war. Samar Mordana, Fouad El-Khoury, and Akram Zatari speak together about Europe's preoccupation with the Middle East as imaged by Orientalist, Western travelers. The Arab Image Foundation was launched as a nonprofit in 1997. It received a massive grant, and others came on board, like Walid Rad and Zaina Arida. We wanted to be able to recount one day, Zatari explains, a history of photography in the Arab region. Zatari had been traveling throughout Lebanon looking for photographs, especially vernacular photographs, which, as he encountered them, he realized needed a home. The foundation's genesis was not as a source for Lebanese artists, but rather was the result of an artist's research project. That distinction is important. This is part of a, the image that I'm showing you here is part of a large archive of work by a vernacular photographer named Hashem Abadani who photographed everyone, nearly everyone, he thinks 90% of the, 
the city in, in southern Lebanon where he lived. And this was a, a woman who had her portrait taken and later her husband came to the studio and, and marked the, um, the, the images, um, scratched through them to sort of scratch out her face. The city of Tangier is just 12 kilometers from Europe, though its borders are closed to its southern neighbors. In 2005, the historic Art Deco Cinema Reef, perched right on the Grand Soco Main Square, is under threat of demolition. No one wants it, except for Ido Barada, an artist raised between Paris and Tangier. She takes over the building and launches the Cinémathèque de Tanger, an art house cinema that she describes as a permanent film festival. As she's preparing to open, she says, in a way, I'm lucky. There's no concert hall or theater here anymore. The cine clubs have gone, and yet there's a population of one million. So I know Tangier is more than ready. 10 years on, the Cinematheque is a nonprofit association that continues to screen and collect Moroccan and international experimental films. This is a shot of the interior. In 2010, artist Abraham Cruz Villegas has just returned to Mexico City after living abroad for several years. He moves into a neighborhood called Escandon, and he and Nuria Montiel decide to found a nonprofit to host one evening only events on the street at the intersection of Jose Marti and Comercio. La Galleria de Comercio, named for one of those streets, has the benefit of being located near a market, a school, and a skateboarding park. Cruz Villegas explains, we've organized drawing, stamp, and sticker workshops installations, performances, film screenings, demonstrations, and some other activities. But mostly what we do is channel the energy and collaborative force from the environment around us. School children, hobos, housewives, merchants, plants, roaches, and also some other artists. Edgar Arsenault, another artist, said that instead of fundraising, we do friend raising. The nonprofit runs for four years, but has reemerged for temporary events on invitation in places like Lima, Peru. There are many, many others that I could describe for you. Project Row Houses in Houston's Northern Third Ward, initiated by artist Rick Lowe. Home Baked in Liverpool, initiated by artist Jana van Heisvik. The public school, which began in Los Angeles and spread to other cities, initiated by artist Sean Dacre. The Watts House Project, also in Los Angeles, initiated by artist Edgar Arsenault. The Land Foundation in Thailand, initiated by artist Rikrit Tiravinija. 16 Beaver in New York, initiated and run by a group of artists. Baita Karama, a women's, women's cooking school in Nablus, Palestine, founded by artist Beatrice Catanzaro. And I'm sure you could tell me about many more especially here in Australia, where the artist-run initiative is as constitutive to an artist development as art school is. Then there are the artist-organized or artist-directed biennials, such as the Ghetto Biennial in Haiti, founded in 2009 as an invitation by a group of Haitian artists to come make work alongside them. The Kochi Missouris Biennale in India was founded in 2012 by artists Rias Kumu and Bose Krishnamach. Krishnamachari, through at the invitation of the government. The 2012 Tbilisi Triennial 
which I, I participated in the 2012 version and then also curated a project for the most recent one a year ago. It was founded by an artist, Vato Saratelli, who had established the first contemporary art school and center in the country and decided to bring international contemporary artists to his city for an event that was cloaked as a triennial but functioned as a school. The image on the screen is of a project we did in an abandoned zoo uh, in a city very close to the, to the capital, Tbilisi, which was a, a completely artificial Soviet city that after um, the Soviet Union collapsed, the, the city essentially collapsed as well, which led to a major infrastructure, major um, abandonment of all sectors of the city, including this zoo where we staged a sort of installation and lecture performance. Oops. Uh, across the Russian border, in the extremely isolated and depressed region of Dagestan, the artist Taus Makhacheva is attempting to do something similar right now. Artists, it seems, don't want to critique institutions anymore. They want to run them. Such activity has been diagnosed, consolidated, and thrown pell-mell into a large room into recent major international events, institutions by artists, and international conference held in 2012 over three days in Vancouver that included 50 speakers from 19 countries. And that's the publication that resulted from the conference. And Artists Organizations International, or AOI, a Congress of Artist Organizations held in Berlin in 2015. Some of the organizations at the latter event include the Concerned Artists of the Philippines, Gulf Labor, uh, the Jewish Renaissance Movement in Poland, Forensic Architecture, the Laboratory of Insurrection, Insurrectionary Imagination, Stodelatz School of Engaged Art, the Silent University, and Milo Rao's International Institute of Political Murder. Both events made plain the wild diversity of the initiatives on offer, which vary dramatically in terms of scope, context, politics, infrastructure, budget, support, network, site, and publics. The two events proved the difficulty of even settling on terminology. Are we speaking of organizations or of institutions or platforms or initiatives? Enough. We begin with a need and someone who feels that need acutely. The response will be suited to the call, and each call and each response should be entirely dependent on the conditions in which it arises. The AOI, desire for these organizations to bind together in solidarity, will always remain unfulfilled for this very reason. Just as the unbridgeable gaps between activism and art, between critique and complicity, between making your bed with the state, or the academy, or the market, persist as unresolvable antinomies as well. It's worth pausing here to ask if the amateurism that emerged in the 1960s in conjunction with conceptualism, the anesthetic, de-skilling, and new technologies is one of the root causes of this rash of activity, and indeed one of the causes of the artist as phenomenon. Amateurism in this moment, Jeff Wall, the artist Jeff Wall argues, and he's speaking of photography, but his words are apropos here. Quote, ceases to be a technical category. It is revealed, amateurism is revealed as a mobile social category 
in which limited competence becomes an open field for investigation. Limited competence recast as an open field for the curious and brave may give permission for some of us to act in manner, all manner of ways in which we are not trained. Amateurism is a methodology of impersonation, which is also why, to speak once again of open secrets, these organizations can be dismal failures or at least profound disappointments, or are not really organizations at all. The Watts House Project in Los Angeles, once called the poster child for urban revitalization by the National Endowment for the Arts, Chief Rocco Landsman, has come under attack for being unreliable, unapproachable, and for not delivering on any promises. Like most of our neighbors, one Watts resident explained, we are not interested in working with them anymore because they haven't really done anything. They hold meetings once a month, but we don't even go because we're so frustrated. This reveals, I think, the knee-jerk expectation we have of these projects to be indisputably good rather than ambivalently subversive, or at the least function at a basic level of competency, which has its own moral undertone. We would hardly bring the same expectations to art where disorganization, dysfunctionality, and obfuscation are valued rather than condemned. And would it matter if I told you that several of the artists who have initiated projects I have described to you are incredibly wealthy and thus the privileged few able to invest time, money, and energy into such community projects? Is this the modern arts philanthropist recast as community organizer? I'm thinking of figures like Catherine Dreyer, who founded the Société Anonyme with Man Ray and Marcel Duchamp, who you see here uh, at her home with Duchamp. Peggy Guggenheim of the Guggenheim Museum, her own eponymous collection, and the Art of the Century Gallery, and Dominique and Jean de Menil, the founders of DIA in the United States. Last section. So I'd like to spend the remainder of the talk thinking about a fairly recent phenomenon. Artists who have initiated institutions that wouldn't normally be considered part of art's apparatus, yet are housed or hosted within this apparatus. To return to my earlier formulation, a lot of turning away from art might bring you back to it. The question remains, what's been transformed in this process? The point, after all, is to transform the apparatus, not simply to transmit it. This is especially true for artists who encounter an apparatus that seems inadequate to their needs. There is probably no other artist-organized initiative that has impacted the apparatus of arts production and distribution more than efflux. It is also the artist organized initiative that has had the most impact on my own life, my everyday encounter with art across the globe, primarily through that ultimate engine of production, promotion, and self-imaging, the press release. Efflux's primal scene is well known. It's November, 1998, New York City. In a holiday inn in Chinatown, a group of artists have staged an exhibition and, unable to afford printed announcement cards, decide to send their press release via Anton Vidokla's new email account. A month later, Vidokla, along with fellow artists Terence Gower, Josh Welber, and Adriana Arenas, found a company called Eflux, which today is co-owned by Vidokla and the artist Julieta Aranda. 
three email announcements per day arrive in the inboxes of over 90,000 subscribers. How many people in the audience subscribe to eFlex? Raise your hand. Okay. 89% of whom are based in Europe and North America. That's also quite interesting to think about how much of eFlex's production and distribution and reception is, is based in North America and, and Europe only. Who uses eFlex, the company's website asks and answers. Nearly all the leading art museums, biennials, cultural centers, magazines, publishers, art fairs, and independent curators worldwide. As eFlex grew and became more prosperous, it diversified far beyond a press release service. Though that activity remains primary, into temporary art projects, a critical journal, two additional online announcement services, Art Agenda and Art and Education, and a storefront space in downtown New York City. So you know now that none of these is the eFlux website, right? <laughs> there it is. It was just too, too wild how many other companies there are that are called eFlux. So this is the real eFlux website. I'm less interested in Vidokla's claim that eFlux is a work of art, which seems to me the least compelling and most conservative thing you could say about it than how it has transformed art's apparatus, specifically how art reaches its public. Eflux understands, as Seth Siegelaub did, that information is power. What is notable about Eflux is just how much power it has, how much it controls, filters, and frames the discourse of art, and how it wields that power to insist on critiquing the very apparatus that supports it. Eflux is complicit in a problematic and pervasive shift in the mediation of art from criticism to publicity, or from legitimation to plain visibility. There is no vetting, for example, of the press releases it sends out. Projects could be entirely fictitious, which is significant considering the eFlux announcement is the only way most of us will ever come to know them. Thus, you could imagine a circuit in which a high-profile curator organizes exhibitions that are promoted on eFlux, then travels internationally to speak about these exhibitions to local audiences that never experience these projects, so are unable to evaluate them. It's a bit of Baudrillard's fever dream of the simulacra come back to haunt us. There's no there there. Despite such complicity, eFlux presents an extraordinary model of what I might even call an emancipatory artistic practice, self-funded enough to generate a highly critical discourse that has dominated art's intellectual thought, at least in Europe, for a decade, as well as numerous artistic projects that would not be supported by the market and whose success, commercial or critical, really does not matter. The Vodokla's and Eflux's diversified portfolio model does look a bit like a multinational corporation, but it also strikes me as being eerily similar to Charles Olson's unrealized multifaceted plan for Black Mountain College when he realized the school he directed was bankrupt and facing imminent closure. Uh, so Charles Olson was an American poet who was director of Black Mountain College at the very end when the school was just in dire financial straits. And he developed, this is, this is probably gonna be impossible for you to read, but he developed this um, model for turning eFlux into a, a corporation, essentially, that would be completely without a physical location and diversified into these portfolios. Uh, so you have the college at the center, a publishing house on the left, on the right a residency, a, 
at the bottom in, a, in Academy, and then what is the thing for you to say? Oh, magazine. And an advisory council, and so on and so forth. So it's quite interesting to think about. This never ha came to pass. They just closed Black Mountain College. But this was his idea of when he knew he was going to lose the campus, of how he could, Black Mountain could continue all of its activities. Vidokla has spoken openly about his desire for art to attain a degree of autonomy from capital, or at least to seize and control the means of production, as well as his desire for art to dissolve itself into life. And these are actually very old-fashioned and utopian ideas about art. The last time I heard him speak, he suggested that in order to do this, artists should collectivize and launch a bakery. So how about a bakery for our next example? I'm going to give three examples, and then we'll, we'll be at the end. In May 2013, at the water's edge of Bivoy, Bivor, I'm having trouble pronouncing this, Bivorvika. Help me, Johan. Yeah, Bivorvika. The Oslo Harbor Front, students from the Sofienberg School mix, knead, roll, adorn, bake, and taste flatbreads at a newly erected temporary shelter called the Bakehouse Bivorvika. This, this is an image. There's the flatbread baking, the final product. A public art project by the Flatbread Society, a shifting alliance of artists, farmers, bakers, scientists, and builders whose primary protagonist is the artist Amy Franceschini. The bakehouse has had two main components, a sloped and angular raw wooden platform that transitioned into a roof, and three linked wood-fired ovens made from bricks and clay on ground level. The temporary version has recently been removed, and a permanent bakehouse is being erected on the site as we speak. The opening will be uh, September 16th, so it's really happening right now. The site is one of massive redevelopment of the Oslo Ford from active port into cultural and residential district. The bakehouse sits squarely within a construction site and appears against copious amounts of urban planning at the highest level of capital and government administration. It attempts to bring people together in a place no one wants to be. It insists on the handmade in the face of the machine made. It gives its infrastructure and its product, breads, away freely in the shadow of a development that shares its name with a supermarket checkout system, the barcode. And the barcode is this, these new high-rises that you see especially on the far right of the image. It wants to slow down, admits pressures to speed up. It's an anachronism that models ways of coming together for the future. The Flatbread Society is an offshoot of Future Farmers, a design studio founded by Franceschini in 1995 that has undertaken a range of projects with an evolving set of collaborators. Future Farmers' origins lie in the technological savvy of late 90s graphic design and online networking, but has since moved to a more insistently analog position that privileges real-life interactions and even pre-industrial forms and methods. And here, these are the ovens that they've just built. Flatbread, for example, is the most ancient food produced by humans after beer to which it was intimately linked through shared yeasts. Projects by future farmers are situational and site responsive and therefore take diverse forms, but some red threads can be teased out. 
First, though the projects involve scientists, farmers, astronomers, botanists, and so on, they are located in and supported by institutions of art. Though the Flatbread Society bakes in the public space of Oslo's harbor, will bake, they were invited there by Slow Space, the overarching public art program for the Oslo Fjord. In Oslo that May day, Franceschini asked the students to imagine that the world is flat. This is the site from aerial view. They're also going to be planting a garden. It's a curious request, one that on the face of it is patently naive, displacing beliefs in a spherical earth. But to claim the world is flat is to insist on locating your body, your gaze, and your labor on the ground rather than in a fictive exterior position. This is, they were on uh, Norwegian TV recently on this kind of morning show. Um, so all of Norway now knows about the project. This was just a shot where you can see the barcode high rises in the background through this close up of the, the vegetables growing. So this is a politics that's implicated rather than disembodied, local rather than global. Recently, the theorist Gayatri Spivak has also rejected the global in favor of an alternate term. Globalization, she writes, is the imposition of the same system of exchange everywhere. The globe is on our, is on our computers. No one lives there. Instead, she prefers the term planet for its admittance of alterity in the sense that we inhabit the planet, but only on loan. Franceschini's insistence on flatness, or a flat earth rather than a globe, puts our feet firmly on the ground where soil is felt, where seeds are sown, and where fields of wheat are grown and harvested. The history of human civilization from prehistory to the present can be told through the story of grain. The Flatbread Society is aware of this narrative, but asks us to reconsider its equivalence to progress and to think differently about our current relationship to grain. It models the possibilities of scaling down food production, and keeping distribution local, and proposes farming practices that allow farmers to remain connected to their craft and knowledge of production. Though there's a danger here of a slide into nostalgia, Marx's description of the baker's workday in Capital vividly shows just how thoroughly the baker was tied to the oven all day, every day. But I do think that the bakehouse transforms public art profoundly, as well as art's function within public, within urban space, and our sense of timescales for art projects. My last example will surely be the most contentious, and I'm certainly not going to do justice to its complex maneuvers and politics in the last few minutes of this talk. In a rural village outside Kinshasa, the Belgian artist Renzo Martins has founded the Institute for Human Activities, a self-described gentrification program. Here, the Congolese Plantation Workers Art League, partially set up by the IHA and directed by former Greenpeace leader Rene Nagongo, hosts workshops training local residents how to make portraits out of clay from the nearby Congo River. These heads are then sent to Belgium where they are made into molds via 3D printing and cast in chocolate by the Belgian chocolate giant Berry Cabot, which sources some of its cocoa from West Africa. In 2014, at the Artis Mundi Prize in Cardiff, Wales, visitors encountered these small chocolate heads for sale 
which bring a profit of 37 pounds each, and which Martins wants to sell in department stores in the near future. But larger chocolate works, made by and credited to individual Congolese artists and operating very much in the realm of fine art sculpture, displayed individually on plinths, are also on view and for sale. Sales are facilitated by the IHA and proceeds return to the artist workers. For Martins, this upsets the usual, however well-meaning, circuitry of contemporary global art in which an artist works in the global south only to have the artworks resulting from that labor monetized in the global north. Obviously, this is a deeply complicated project that partakes of the very circuits of extraction and exploitation of first colonialism and later globalized neoliberalism in order to both, one, expose and critique those very processes and to improve the lives and livelihoods of those most indentured by this very system. It's this circuitry, these trade routes of arts producers and products that are destabilized and transformed by the ethical gray area the IHA engenders, as well as the profound degree of self-reflexivity it demands. So a media empire, a bakery, an NGO, all artist initiated, all supported within the generous and malleable apparatus of art in which the propositional can coexist with the pragmatic in so many ways, from the most dysfunctional to the most ethically smug. And yet each in its own way, by turning away from the space of art, yet insisting that such an act of turning be located within art, shows the limitations of that apparatus, its cracks and fissures, its hypocrisies and narrow ruts, what it will and won't permit, and why. Thank you. <laughs> we made it. So thank you so much. I'm really happy to entertain any comments or questions. Like I said, it's a totally fresh lecture. It's the first time I read it out loud. And I need to work on my pronunciation of Jorvika. <laughs> Thanks, Tara. That was great. Um, I was just thinking about when, when you were talking about all these different um, modes in which artists might initiate activities, if, if maybe we think there's something remarkable about artists performing these activities outside of the, the kind of realms of art, um, because maybe we still have a very ro romantic idea of what an artist is, and we, we think that it's significant or remarkable when an artist might have organizational skills, or they might be <laughs> on, entrepreneurial, or um, that they might be civically minded, or even that they might be quite unethical. You know, do you think that part of the reason why there's so much kind of discourse about the artist as, you know, whatever um, around at the moment is because we're still really thinking about artists in, in a, a romantic term. Uh-huh. So, so like we have this kind of um, older romanticized idea of the artist's function and so when they, when they step roll up their sleeves and organize an institution, right. it's shocking to us yes. or, or something like something that. Something along those lines. Yeah, interesting. I mean, I, I had been thinking about it as the space of art is one of the few places in our society where you can still be disorganized and without function and 
all of the kinds of things that make a society well-functioning. We don't need to have those things in art, and that that's a really extraordinary and sort of precious space for, for where people, artists, can propose alternate models for how to organize yourself in the world. So like the idea of dysfunctionality, subversion, an entirely fictitious organization, something that maybe is ethically gray, that art can support this kind of, um, can support these, these modes of being that might not normally find traction in the world and which hold up this warped mirror, right, to certain kind of structures or expectations of how we do function. So it was something like, um, I, I had been thinking of it a bit more in those terms, like there's this fundamental tension between the idea of the artist being a, a well, <laughs> well-organized, well-functioning bureaucrat, and, and then the idea that art is normally a space where you can be pr precisely the opposite. Whether or not it's um, rom a holdover of, of a romanticized <coughs> idea of the artist, I hadn't, I hadn't really thought about. Yeah, what, what does everyone else think? Is it, are we, is this, yeah, is this maybe a kind of um, hangover of that? Yeah. <laughs> Curious to hear other thoughts, Aileen. I think my comment and question will kind of get into how, at least in the art world, we still romanticize the kind of freedom of the position of the artist, which I think is at this point quite fictional. But I wondered to come back to the start of your talk when you were talking about this um, new breed of curator who doesn't care for the object and doesn't always care for the well-being of the artist as a person and doesn't care for the history of the, Some, well, for the history of art or the history of curating, if that's not symptomatic of this kind of unrealistic and romanticization of the freedom of the artist and an attempt of people to take that supposed liberty of the artist into the world of curatorial practice. Uh to deprofessionalize a kind of infrastructure that I personally believe is, you know, grounded in a duty of care. And I find hmm. that kind of whimsical movement into a, you know, totally liberal approach to areas of research and kind of negation of a very practical responsibility really problematic. But I think that might be a kind of residue of the romanticization of the artist. Mm -hmm. It's not really a question. <laughs> yeah, no, that that's interesting because I do I do think that there is um, an emerging kind of curator. I mean, there are many different kinds of curators, obviously, as there should be. There should be many kinds of curators and many kinds of artists. But there is a, a I have noticed an emerging kind of curator that feels more like an artist to me. I, I guess this has also been talked about, also like by you know ever since. Um, like Document of Five in 1972 where Harold Zeman got accused of acting too much like an artist. But um, it, especially in how they approach the field and research, and research of course has emerged recently, past years as a, a really crucial 
way of approaching anything that you do. And so it, it, it has been interesting to notice that there is this emerging form of curator that seems to be aligned more with the, the contemporary artist than with the traditional model of the curator as stemming from duty of care. Um, and right, so then the question becomes, is that curator uh, mimicking or identifying with an idea of the artist that is romanticized and um, potentially out, out of date? Yeah, it's an interesting question. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, I suppose there probably are some. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in a way, I just want to make a brief comment about EFLUX because it is, of your three examples, I think is the most evocative in one way because, I mean, Anton Vidokla is a Russian immigrant. He's super romantic. I, I, you know, I used to work for him. He's, he's a very kind of deep down a super romantic artist, but he's done something that almost no other artists have managed to do. And that's to, like Google, kind of, he completely uh, has taken over the means of production. Yeah, and he's yeah. independently wealthy by not doing basically anything. Yeah. All the people that are clients of EFLUX do all the work, they pay huge sums of money for him to just distribute it. And it's because it's emails and digital, there's no physical, like there's, there's minimal labor. Uh, it's all automated, it's all kind of set up. Once you set it up, it's kind of like Google. Google is making money, they don't have to you know, make stuff every day, they have the algorithm, they have the website. And in a way, EFLUX is kind of the ultimate uh, 21st century art product in a way, because it's kind of, despite what Anton and Juliata say, I mean, they've set up something which is so powerful and so extraordinary and uh, has made them independently wealthy in a way that I think artists can just dream about. I mean, you know, Jeff Koons can kind of rival them for type of like, for, for um, for being kind of, you know, setting up a structure which, you know, basically allows you to not do any work and still get huge sums of money. But I think what's interesting about it too, and you talked about that, is of course that it's seen as this super critical kind of leftist project when it's really just kind of, it, it's completely neoliberal in its kind of every permutation of it. Uh, and I think in that way, it's, it's very, it's, you know, super interesting and I think someday, there will be a lot of PhD um, uh, dissertations written about EFLUX as a phenomena, yeah. you know, starting in 1999, but, uh, but really kind of, uh, I think, through the first 20 years of the 21st century, kind of become dominant in the terms of um, um, distribution around um, information around exhibitions. Uh, and it's, like you say, the most boring thing to think about is as an artwork, but maybe as a position an artist to take that position to so fully take over the means of production in a kind of a 21st century way, like Google, like Yahoo, like all of these, um, uh, even like Apple. It's, it's, it's quite remarkable and it's still hard to kind of um, understand where something like EFLUX sits within the traditional realm of the art object or the artist. I'm so surprised that there hasn't been any really critical writing on EFLUX yet. I mean, it's been around for a while, and no one's touched it. It's really strange to me. They sue all the startups. They sue all the people that try and start here. That's a big part of it. Yes. Actually, there's a there's an interesting essay that Vidokla writes about um, Warhol 
And it's interesting, he, he actually says that Warhol set up the factory and then did nothing, you know, that he set up the mechanism and then it ran itself. Much like Anton. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. I think there's an, an interesting analogy there, potentially. Yeah, these are all interesting questions. I'm sorry I can't fully answer the romanticization question. I have to think it through a little bit more. But any other comments would be welcome. Thank you guys. Thank you so much for having me.